Welcome back to Going Viral, a podcast all about the viruses that spread infectious disease. I'm Mark Konigsbaum, a medical historian and expert on epidemics and pandemics. Today we're bringing you a special episode looking at the role of the internet and mainstream media in the growth of vaccine hesitancy. In the last 18 months, Europe and the United States have seen an upsurge in measles cases, seemingly fueled by growing distrust of the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine. Many media commentators blame the measles outbreaks on the activities of anti-vaxxers and misleading information about MMR and other vaccines that circulate on Facebook, YouTube and Twitter. But are anti-vaxxers really to blame for the upsurge in measles cases? Or is it all a bit of a moral panic manufactured by the press? And what about the rare cases where a vaccine is associated with an adverse event? How should journalists report genuine concerns about the safety and efficacy of vaccine without giving a platform to anti-vaxxers? So thank you everyone for coming to this. I'm Mark Honigsbaum. I'm a lecturer in journalism here. To answer those questions, I invited four experts on vaccines and the media to a panel discussion at City University of London. They were Fiona Fox, the chief executive of the Science Media Centre in London and a champion of evidence-based scientific news, Dr David Robert Grimes, a cancer researcher at Trinity College Dublin and a prolific science blogger, Joe Yarwood, the immunisation manager at Public Health England, and Emily Karafalakis from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine's Vaccine Confidence Project. The title of our discussion was Adverse Events, vaccines and the media. I'm using adverse events in a double meaning because I think part of what I want to discuss or what I really want the focus to be as much as possible is how should journalists be responding to all this misinformation out there but also there are legitimate concerns about vaccines and that also presents other problems for reporters. Uh, If you don't mind, I'll start with Fiona because I know you've prepared something specially for us so why don't you start off? So the SMC that I run was set up in 2002 because of MMR and GM and things that had gone wrong. The Wakefield paper, as you know, was published in 98, so this was four years later, but the media storm was still going strong. I could talk for ages about this, but just let me tell you a few of my memories of MMR in the media back then. It was not a happy phase. You know, the medical science community felt really powerless to kind of get things back on track. So it was very normal then for producers to call us saying, can you give us a pro and anti-vaccine expert for the BBC Today, please? I remember Neil Dixon, who was then social affairs editor at the Beeb, being yelled at and really in trouble with his BBC bosses because he dared to run a package on the 6 and 10 without balance. So every single package had Andrew Wakefield or one of his four or five supporters or what's her name, Jackie Fletcher from Jabs. There was balance in every interview back then. Um, a charity called Sense, I don't know if you've heard of them, they represent deaf-blind children affected when their mothers got mumps in pregnancy, were repeatedly told by journalists openly, we're not interested in your case studies, your human interest stories. We need the ones of the children damaged by vaccines, not by mumps. Um, and in 2003, I remember this one really clearly, Channel 4 ran a two-hour docudrama, Hear the Silence, with Hugh Bonneville as the lovely um, Dr Wakefield and Juliet Stevenson as the mother of a boy with autism. We were approached to get vaccines 
scientists for the studio discussion, which was an hour, I think, straight a live discussion. And we were sure, don't worry, it'll be 50-50. So you've got two-hour drama um, on the Wakefield side and then a discussion afterwards in a studio that we were assured would be 50-50. So MMR rates, I think then were around 80%, so much less than herd needed for herd immunity. And a Mori poll conducted by uh, the ESRC showed, and this I think was the most damning for me, that two-thirds of the British public felt that medical science was split down the middle on the safety of MMR. I mean, just pause there for one second. How did anyone vaccinate their children? If you thought medical science was split down the middle and that 50% of doctors thought you could, your child could get autism, I mean, that was, and that was a failure of the media or somebody, it was a failure of somebody. So it was a proper, real, bona fide crisis. Scroll forward 15 years, we are in a completely different universe. So the mainstream media report vaccines largely responsibly. A couple of things I've seen that have upset me, but mostly very good. Anti-vaxxers are treated like Holocaust deniers by the media. Absolutely. If they're ever on, which is very rare, um, like the Victoria Derby show recently, they're given a very, very hard time. But mostly nobody will touch them. Uh, not a single journalist or newspaper uh, uh, takes an anti-vaccine stance that I know of in mainstream media. And the case studies now being reported, like Hugh Pym a couple of weeks ago, are children harmed by measles, not by vaccines. So why have we got non-stop coverage in the UK <laughs> since late last year? Why? So this is it. I'm going to throw it out there. I think we are in the grip of a moral panic, and I think it's being fueled by our own health leaders, not PHE, I hasten to add. Um, but it's built on a perfect storm of popular anger against social media, desire to, uh, to change things there, and all of this angst and worry about fake news, post-truth, Trump, all of that has come together. And then Matt Hancock talks about blood on their hands, and uh, Simon Stevens says it's a time bomb waiting to happen, and it's all kind of come together. So I accept that there are, global, there are issues globally, but they seem to be particular to certain countries and particular vaccines. Reasonable coverage of global problems, I think, in the media, less reasonable media focus in the UK. So that's it. I don't think the media are particularly whipping it up, but I think what Mark is asking journalists in the audience or students or whatever is to say, do they have a responsibility? Because there are a lot of people, when I wrote about this, a lot of journalists were emailing me saying, I couldn't agree with you more. And the next day, vaccine crisis said. So they're reporting it uncritically, I would say, at the very least. So I don't blame the media for doing it, but I think they should be asking questions. I haven't yet seen any compelling evidence whatsoever that anti-vaxxers on social media are the reason that there's vaccine hesitancy in the UK. Well, th thank you for that. I, I think since you raise it, we should come immediately to you because you had the Vaccine Cotton's Project. I know you've done lots of different reports, but you have looked at what sort of relationship there might be between the misinformation that circulates on the internet, social media, and these rates. So, can you kind of give us an overview of what yeah. these studies? show or don't. The Vaccine Confidence Project, just to, to explain yeah. a little bit about the centre, uh, was set up about, well, it was set up 10 years ago, so it's, <laughs> it's yeah. been 10 years now, when um, Heidi Larson, at the time, she used to work at UNICEF, and she realised that there was an issue in certain countries where people were not vaccinating because, or, you know, were delaying vaccinating, vaccination because they had certain concerns about safety or, or others. And this was not being talked about. People didn't want to talk about it at UNICEF at other places. So she decided to set up the research group to look specifically at that and understand a little bit what is happening, what are the key issues. So we've been working on that and we have been looking more recently at social media and the role that social media has had on 
all of all of the issues that are circulating. And I think what we can see is, you know, we, we still need to look perhaps for better correlation, but it's just what this role of social media is in amplifying certain of the concerns and in spreading them at a global scale. So what we can see with HPV, for example, is concerns started in, in Japan being shared on YouTube videos that are then translated and certainly appear in Denmark and in Ireland and in other places. So it certainly has had an, a certain role in spreading rumors globally and in making amplifying you know, the concerns that were there from the beginning, but certainly given anti-vax, well, anti-vaccination groups, giving them a bigger voice and a bigger platform to, to share their... Right. And, th and this, I mean, kind of think of the internet as something that we only have in, like, you know, high-income countries. If you go to Africa <coughs> and Asia, everyone's using WhatsApp. Oh, yeah. yeah, so... Because yeah. they spread to all areas, even, even yeah. people living in quite remote, maybe rural, impoverished communities. Yeah. We've seen misinformation spreading on WhatsApp mm. about uh, Zika, about... Mm. Uh, various vaccines in Brazil and mm. in India, so it's right. everywhere. It's just different platforms I use, obviously, in different countries and, and in different regions of the world right. to a different extent, and people use the platforms differently, but yeah. it is it is present globally. Joe, could you um, give us your perspective of public health thinking, because I think you've quite strong views on the degree to which this is uh, a problem of misinformation as opposed to access. So I think it's very interesting to hear what's been said, because I think there are several issues we have to get right. I think the first thing is about context and generalising from one country to another. I don't think that's safe because I think what we need to do is look at what's happening within our population because as already been said, different populations are affected by different things, different scares, and so it's absolutely essential that we set everything into context. And further to that, what's really important to us at PHE is to make sure that we're asking the right people the right questions. And you might say, well, you know, me, my people in my team, we're various types of experts in the immunisation world, but who is the expert in knowing what parents think? Who is the expert in knowing what parents want? Parents. And since 1991, we have been running a survey of parents to ask them what they think about the immunisation programme in this country. We've seen that actually the, the people that are trusted are healthcare professionals. That's who they want the proper information from. If you look at all the evidence around immunisation, <coughs> and if you were to have a set of scales, I think in pictures, so you have to forgive me, have a set of scales, old-fashioned ones, you put the evidence for immunisation on one side, and against immunisation on the other side, and its protective effect, and I mean good, properly researched scientific evidence. The scales <coughs> do this. This is the side where there is no evidence, if you like. This is the evidence that it's a good thing to do. So it's very important that we set all of this in context. We understand trust issues because they're very important. And if we keep saying things publicly, then one of the very old sayings about there is no smoke without fire, people start to get concerned. And yes, we do risk driving some sort of moral panic's quite a <laughs> dramatic turn of phrase. But if we start to keep talking about it and keep talking about it, people will begin to worry. 
everybody who is a parent wants to be a good parent. And there is this drive that, oh, well, if I'm not questioning it, I'm not being a good parent. But actually, look at the evidence. Look at who people trust, and let's talk about that. I just wanted to bring in David here, because maybe you could give us some insight into how the HPV you know, sure. became yeah. a problem in Ireland and, and what people did. Absolutely. The first yeah. thing I'd say is I wish I shared the optimism of the panel, <laughs> but we've just come from a fresh... It's nice to look back at the Wakefield thing and uh, the benefit of hindsight. <coughs> Social media wasn't a massive factor back then. No, now, even then, there was research papers as early as 1998, oddly enough, fittingly, on the growing impact of uh, anti-vaccine messaging on social media. Social media back then wasn't a thing, it was websites. We have just come from an Irish vaccine confidence crisis. It started in Japan in 2013. It brought rates from 70% coverage to 1% within a year. Doctors doing it were threatened and metastasized to Denmark in 2014, and it brought their rates down from 79% to 17% within about six months. And in 2015, it came to Ireland, and Muggins here just happened to be there when it happened. <laughs> and it went within a year from 87% uptake to 50 that was started on social media, that was spread on social media, and a lot of us would have been on the front lines of seeing that happen and trying to work against it. The origin of all these stories were spread between different anti-vaccine groups online, and they popped up quicker than we could combat them. The second, before I get into that, the second point I would say is, there's a little bit that, that we think people are very discerning. That's not what the data is telling us. 2016 Stanford experiment looked at digital natives in particular, looked at everyone and said, how good are they at discerning sources? They had Stanford undergrads, they had teenagers, they had middle school, American middle school and high school kids. They were woeful. The way the researchers described the results was bleak and a threat to democracy. So these were digital natives who we expected to be more savvy than their parents. They were not. So this is, I, I would just be very careful about assuming that we're, your kids probably are very savvy. I'm not sure that's... Not mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. But it, I'm not sure how translatable it is. The other thing that we have to be very mindful of, and again, I'm going to be boring and go back to research papers that looked at this, was there's a 2015 paper on dissemination of different information in different spheres. So we've been very Anglo-centric at the moment. Um, historically, maybe, England has been slightly Anglo-centric. But there's a world picture in this, and the internet connects everything together. So they looked in 2015 at how science news disseminates and how conspiracy theories, which I have an interest in studying, disseminate. And it turns out they don't even live in the same universe. Conspiracy theories last a lot longer, they travel a lot further, and they penetrate a lot deeper than science news, which is absorbed. And the audiences don't overlap. The audiences live in different universes. In my audience on Twitter, for example, there is not going to be many anti-vaccine people following me on Twitter. I can do all the <coughs> campaigning I wish. I'm yelling into the void. They're on a different group. So these are all things that worry me a little bit. The HPV vaccine, we saw a microcosm of that because it took a huge amount of effort. We, Ireland was able to reverse its decline. We're now back up to the 70s. That took a sustained, massive effort by healthcare professionals, patient advocates. But it was grueling and it was unpleasant. Because it started in Japan. But this is what I come back to. I mean, different countries. It actually started in America before. In America, right? Okay. Yeah. It went far from Michel Bach. Oh, it even, it even went further back oh, okay. than that. It started, in fact, if you look at analysis of YouTube videos done on it, they are almost overwhelmingly negative. And that was the first recorded stuff. That goes back to 2009. So then the messaging has been consistently negative. It's just where does it take root? 
and that depends on a lot of factors. Well, that's what I was going to say. What are the other factors? So if we could just maybe like say, okay, the internet, uh, there are different opinions, yeah. but we all agree it's we, a big thing, but uh, I don't know. Well, in, in Denmark, you yeah. probably, in Denmark and Ireland, it was a case that national media picked up the stories online. In Denmark, it was TV2, who were a national broadcaster, and they did a documentary called Sacrificial Virgins, which not an inflammatory title at all, about these damaged girls. And suddenly it was a feedback loop. Everyone was reporting on the documentary and that's the narrative was established. Ireland TV3 did the exact same thing a year later and that's how it became mainstream. But it needed that mutation to jump ship. You remind me of something very interesting because if you go back way before the internet to, and I think this is where the point you're making is often, it's often conventional media. That I mean, we've had Panorama at the time of Wakefield, you know, amplifying uh, those concerns. Yeah. But if you go back to the Pertussis whooping cough, mm. which is kind of the original modern vaccine conspiracy, that was started by a primetime documentary on American TV called DTP Roulette. I mean, there's now something called, you know, there's this um, National Vaccine Information Center, yeah. which is one of these shill organizations. But they started with the patient act, they grew out of the patient activism around Pertussis and cough. But that was started by conventional you know, journalists mm, yeah. doing their job, or what they thought was their job. Um, and, and it spilled over to the UK, and we saw an impact on the whooping cough uptake. I think it fell as low as 30% in England, and it, it took decades, and I think I'm reasonably accurate in this, for it to completely recover. And in fact, we saw in the tracking, you know, when we started in 91, which, as you recall, is about 13 years yeah. after the whooping cough sort of debate began, people were still talking about whooping cough then as a vaccine they had concerns about. So they can last for quite a long time, but the impact is different in different countries. And, I say, and I'm not trying to deny the different issues there are across the globe. And in fact, you can look at some of our near neighbours and they have much less trust in vaccines than we do in, this, in the UK. So I'm not trying to be Anglo-centric. What I'm trying to say is context is very important. And if we're reporting about issues in our different places, if you like, then we have to be aware of what that context is. Otherwise, we may be bringing issues into the arena that people hadn't even dreamt of before. No, I, I completely agree. I think I was just thinking about sort of what other factors can help spread this type of, of concerns and crisis. And I think one of the findings that we have from the multiple surveys that we've done over, you know, global surveys over the years, if you look at the data and confidence <clears throat> in the importance of vaccine, it's pretty much stable. So people actually have quite a high confidence in the importance of vaccine. They know that they're there, they, you know, that they're there for a reason. They want to, in the end, help, as, as you were saying, Joe, they want to do what's best for their children. Yeah. So they, they think that, you know, but confidence in safety is completely volatile and it changes such as in the case of, of HPV in, in Denmark and Ireland, it changes just like that. Right. And people can just lose confidence in the safety. And I think that's just a, an example of how mistrust is reflected in vaccination and how people are afraid of side effects, adverse events. It shows something else. It shows the context that wasn't right and that just the broader mistrust in, in health authorities and in, in, in other other issues. So I think it, it is a bit difficult because I um, I absolutely accept there are issues in other countries, yeah. but the, the Science Media Centre does work in the UK with the UK press. So we're, we, I think we're different. So my question then to this side of the panel is if everything in the UK shows 
that social media is not the problem in the UK. It's not a fair... I mean, th th this polling evidence is very... It's not just uh, Joe's family. It is a major <laughs> survey well conducted, but I've got loads of others. There's quite a lot of evidence from different... There was something on uh, in The Guardian recently, 83% not trusting social media. So if it's not a problem in the UK... Is it okay for Matt Hancock and Simon Stevens and the media and the commentators to say that's the problem? We need to take action against social media. We need new laws to ban anti-vaxxers from social media in the UK. We, we need to not rule out <coughs> mandatory immunisation. So is it the good lie, which is what people in NHS England have argued to me? Okay, we know it might not be true, there isn't evidence, but we can jump on the back of that and drive home these messages that we're all in agreement with. So I think that would be useful to kind of tease out. Well, I think Matt Hancock is raising the nuance, but I could probably accuse you of the same. <laughs> no, yeah. no disrespect. Well, the reason was if you look at it, there is an there's, there's a more subtle argument underneath that. For example, 2014, Daniel Jolly et al. in Plus Medicine looked at what was the biggest single driver for vaccine hesitancy. So we're talking about a spectrum. There's anti-vaccine views, which you will never shift, and that's what the data tells us we can't. There's vaccine hesitancy, which is volatile, and that's how much you trust. The biggest single driver of that was exposure to conspiracy theory online. It was the single biggest driver of whether a parent flipped, and that had a huge sample group. Now, that was done on Americans mainly, so you say, we're that different? I don't think we are. But the other thing about that is, the more subtle question is, okay, so people distrust uh, social media, <coughs> which is fair. If you're driving a sense of general mistrust, if you're making people doubt everything they come across, how much does that doubt spread into other things? That is one of the biggest things that propaganda, even look at Russian propaganda does, it's to instill a sense of doubt. So that doubt might be good for us in this case. That doubt is also volatile, I would argue. So I'd agree Matt Hancock is being absolutely lacking nuance, saying we should lock everyone up and they should do this. But I'd also say, well, we, just to accept that the data says that's not a problem for us, I would say that lacks the nuance to say that could flip for you tomorrow mm -mm. because it has for other people and it's definitely done it for us. I also think that the problem with social media is that we can't look at a country by itself. Mm -hmm. And social media just brings everyone connected together across the world. So it's not like, you know, we're going to do something about social media and ban the ones in the US but not in the UK. I don't personally agree that banning social media content is, is or at least, you know, it, it's complicated. But it's just, we have to look at it as a global communication mechanism and not as something that we would do somewhere else but not in the UK. The situation in the UK right now, coverage is high, confidence is high, so we know that. And it's just about being prepared and I think we are prepared yeah. and you know Public Health England is prepared the media the journalism the communication is so much better than what it used to but it's just acknowledging that in our world today social media has a contribution in other countries for the moment it's been acknowledged in other countries it may happen sometimes in the UK we need to have the tools to respond to it and I think you know that there's some great great tools that, that we have at our disposal so we've been talking about how uh, journalism may itself contribute to this phenomenon by you know inflating the influence of social media where maybe it doesn't deserve to be given credence with it but what about where you know there are occasionally stories I and mean, the two that lead to mind this year were the prominent professor at university college london who went for a yellow fever shot and he had this very unusual reaction and ended up dying there have been other stories to do with the yellow fever vaccine but, I mean, these stories do come up from time to time. And the impression I'm getting, and this is just sort of anecdotal, is that 
because um, it's become so highly charged around, you know, anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, a lot of science and health corps have now seemed reluctant to really report <clears throat> on legitimate concerns people might have about vaccines. The point about, you know, vac- vaccinology, like all sides, it's never settled. We often don't know how a vaccine actually induces an immune effect or why it works for some populations better than others. But scientists, you know, in this sort of environment where to allow any, you know, you're very reluctant to allow any crack, less that provides an opening to all the anti-vax crazies. Would you agree with any of that? My question really is, you know, um, it's quite difficult now for a health and science journalist, you know, because you're fearful of amplifying the pseudoscience if you actually report a legitimate scientific story. Uh, I don't know, would you come to that here in a moment? I worry about journalists doing anything but journalism. They should be doing journalism and they should be asking tough questions. And this has been around a bit with climate change now and, you know, the the guidelines on on changing the words around climate change to be very political, emotive words in The Guardian and the BBC running a campaign on plastics. I just, I'm really uncomfortable with that. The BBC, there are millions of campaigns on plastics and I love them all. And there are PHE and people who are campaigning for good science information on vaccines. The journalists must report good evidence, but must also ask the questions. I think it was our friend Kate Callan from Reuters who did a lot of the journalism on the narcolepsy, who dug and dug and dug. And I think it was her that um, exposed a lot of those issues that led to the retraction of the vaccine. Right. But it wasn't very widely no, reported it wasn't. It was, in the No, it was just Reuters. It was just Reuters rather than the yeah. mainstream press. And I think, I think that's... <clears throat> right now, I think a lot of journalists would absolutely think they're going to get it in the neck from the SMC and they'd be wrong. But from the, from the Simon Sings of this world and Ben Goldacres will be ready to pounce, as people were when the Times um, reported Wakefield, I think justifiably. But there, there is a bit of a something going wrong here where, you know, journalists are not science communicators. We have thousands of science communicators. We do it really well and it's right that we do it. We batch for science. But the journalists, they should be there scrutinising us and scrutinise... Now, that, we can still discuss journalistic standards. Of course, I shouldn't have reported Wakefield speaking from Chicago last week. I mean, what... He, Wakefield's been speaking in an American town every week for the last 10 years mm. and he hasn't been reported. I mean, this is why I'm raising this thing of moral panic. I think Wakefield <laughs> is in the Times and in the Telegraph last week because we've made such a fuss about in the UK about vaccines. Okay. Anyway, we I digress. Get, we, we always get dragged back to Wakefield. Sorry. <laughs> just on that point, what do you have a view on? You know, there are legitimate... Yeah. I, I, I think I'm 90% in agreement with you, but I have, again, a 10% difference, just to be awkward. So earlier on, and may I, maybe I misunderstood, <coughs> you guys said it's the amount of coverage can, per, can create the perception there's a problem. Now, I'm looking at an audience of young journalists, I'm thinking, I think that's a function of bad journalism, and I think that doesn't have to be that way. Mm. And I've seen this a little bit, and I'll give a very short example of it. I think that if we discuss things very openly, including the fact, you know, you mentioned the swine flu thing, if you look at the absolute versus relative risk mm. of even the, the narcolepsy, yeah. it was very, very minor. We still should have been open about it. Mm. But I, do this, I, I talk about cancer risk a lot. That's what I, was like, I talk a lot about. And when that red meat thing came out, I had to explain the difference between absolute risk and relative risk. And if you sat down and spoke to journalists, they'd often go, oh, so that, that's all. I'm like, yeah, you should report it, but you should put it in context. Mm-hmm. So after the HPV vaccine stuff came out, there was a lot of false balance going on in Irish media. And one of the very, and I wrote about this for The Guardian because it was really an admirable exception, was a, a, a physician broadcaster called Kira Kelly, News Talk in Ireland. And she said, David, we're going to do a show about this. 
Um, we're going to talk about all the parental fears. We're going to talk about everything. It's going to be a two-hour show. We're not going to have anyone anti-vaccine in the audience, but we're going to discuss every fear that's come up and talk about it. Mm. And it became like a podcast, and that was cited later on as something that parents actually found really reassuring. Because we weren't brushing their concerns under mm. the carpet. We were going, yeah, and here's why people feel... And we weren't making them feel like idiots for responding to this because actually that's exactly what anti-vaccine activism does they aim for the middle ground to make them more hesitant and the only way you can ever do that is addressing them so my argument maybe mm. idealistically is actually we need more coverage of everything but we need it put in context yeah. communicated clearly and then people can go oh that's all fair enough okay, let's kind of just take over so you're advocating <coughs> let's discuss everything but in a safe space not involve or bring in the anti i mean oh yeah well, i mean just <laughs> no, just i'm just, no. just gonna <laughs> i just like to get a sort of view on this <laughs> panel i mean do you think you know in the world we live in now where you, you can't like put the genie back in the bottle. You know, these crazies are out there and they're everywhere and you know, we can debate how much influence they're having. Do you think it's legitimate for journalists to reflect any of that opinion or should they just be sort of, no, that's, uh, that's outside of um, evidence-based journalism, it should be outside evidence-based science? I think it's legitimate to reflect the evidence. So I think if you were to go to our leaflets, uh, for example, the ones that are targeted at parents, we, we list potential side effects. We're very careful to do that. Um, and actually, you know, I showed you the balance earlier. The potential side effects, by and large, are extremely small. But that's why it's important to put them there, because then people are not afraid of what might happen. So, you know, sore arms, redness and swelling. When we used to use oral polio vaccine, we used to have in the material that there was uh, one in more than a million, was it, that we said, risk of vaccine-associated paralytic polio. That was in the leaflet. So, you know, the thing to do is to be honest and open. And I think that's what we try to be. But again, context, it's that word again, isn't it? You know, it's got to be contextual. Otherwise, you will either frighten people or create a story. Yeah. And, you know, we could go back to Wakefield again. We could go back to whooping cough. Mm. But the fall we saw after Wakefield <coughs> wasn't as large as the fall we saw after whooping cough. Yeah. And nothing like the fall we've seen in Denmark or Ireland or Japan. But what's really interesting is that Denmark and Ireland are very close and it just didn't rub across. Mm. Weird. In Northern Ireland's fine. Yeah, Northern and Northern Ireland's Ireland fine. Right there. And when we had the MMR issue, it didn't affect the rest of the programme. So whatever the medium was that was influencing it, and we're not denying that you know the social media impact across the globe, whatever the medium is, it's, it's about getting those messages right. Okay, well, we've been speaking for it. I'm sure that you have lots of things to say. Yes. Can you just introduce yourself before I start? I'm Alex Benedict. I'm a journalist. I'm right. I've just started researching piece on anti-vaxxer sentiment in the press. So I'm a virgin in this field, and I guess my journey has been similar to many parents who might come this. And what I can say of my three days research, my piffling research, is how disappointed I've been in the lack of clarity of the anti-anti-vaxxer case. I've been looking for the killer paragraph that just tells me the killer stat, the facts. What I get lots of is there is no evidence that vaccinations hurt or damage, none whatsoever. Brackets, trust me, I'm a doctor. Well, the reason I'm concerned about this is because I don't trust doctors. You know, lots of people don't trust doctors. Doctors, you ask anti-vaxxers, they'll say doctors are in the pay of Big Pharma. Of course they'll say that. 
So what I've been looking for is a much more... Well, first of all, you know, I'm happy to start with there is no evidence. And then I want to know what is the evidence that there is no evidence. And I'm not getting that. I'm not getting that at all. I'm just getting a load of assertions which fit in perfectly with a worldview. We're all run by lizard people. And there, there is no um, backing up. So I feel like the public health argument is a little bit pompous and a little bit... And it's undifferentiated. And it's not got the, the same volume because part of the problem is you go on, online, which is where people get their information. And the, I mean, I'm virtually virtually swayed by the volume of evidence that there is a, a cover-up about vaccines. I mean, it's only because I quickly run off and talk to somebody <coughs> like you to pull me back onto the light side that I've not gone over to the dark side. So I, I feel like... I feel like the medical establishment is not making its case. That's actually a very strong point, because I think the anti we have to give them credit for being quite clever in how they trigger people's concern. Yeah. So the big buzzword, uh, or the big idea around measles, you see in anti-vaccine sites, is they'll say natural immunity is superior to vaccine-induced immunity. And then you'll get people commenting like, I'm a baby boomer, everyone I know during the baby boom got measles, and we're all okay, we've got perfect immunity now. Because it's complex, basically. It is, and one of the <coughs> phrases I've used in the past is, immunisation, its very success is its own failure. Right because what we don't see are the diseases. So I'm very old, so when I was five, I was at a small school, and the whole school got measles, because that's what happened in those days. 1963, boom, no vaccines, nothing. Everybody got measles. Now, in those days, we didn't talk very openly, I think, as families about things that happened, you know, that were not nice. And there was a little girl in my <coughs> class who never came back to school, dead. I didn't find that out until I was in my 40s. I knew she hadn't come back to school, but, oh, she's gone away. You know, that's what we were told. She was dead, and she died of measles, and she was perfectly healthy. Now, that wasn't a very safe way to get immunity, and that's... A lot of these diseases are deadly. Most many of these diseases are deadly. Can we come to this gentleman's so, point, though, because... But that's what I'm saying. Yeah. What's you, The evidence... Is huge, the evidence base. Well, what he's saying is what he found when he went on the internet, yeah. not what he found when he talks to you now. Yeah, could, could I jump in but there? I don't. That's okay. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> what, 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 you actually, I, I feel like a genuine fear of point because volume information is the illusory truth effect, yeah. which is essentially that humans make decisions based on the availability heuristic, how much information is there that seems to support a worldview. And I do agree that, I mean, I, I, I was an actor way before I was in, into uh, science, and you do realize that sometimes science communication is a little bit uh, flaccid to put a better point on it one of the things that comes out there an awful lot is people forget that people connect to emotive stories first and this is why tales of vaccine damage go viral it's why they travel it's why they have it so if we're just saying oh there's no evidence absolutely right the Irish case and I'm going to use this and this is um, kind of raw for me actually the reason Ireland reversed its decline was because not only did the HSE the health service executive our NHS come together with all sciences experts and say we're going to work on this together and do good information. They were very lucky that a young woman called Laura Brennan, who was diagnosed with terminal cervical cancer, came to them. Now Laura was a very close friend of mine and passed away in March. She was a natural. They couldn't have asked for better. She got in front of the camera she says, I'm the reality of an unvaccinated girl. Me. And she would do it and she would she used to deliberately make me cry because she thought it was funny. That but that's how good she was, okay? Lightning struck with her. 
And that's what reversed it. It wasn't just a scientific communication. <coughs> that did some good. We actually have data that did some good. We had a meeting in 2017. Some of us were at, we started seeing co coherent uh, you know, information was. But you need to put a face in it. People need, like your case there, they need a story and they need to see what do vaccines prevent. Yeah. They prevent this here. You know, this young woman wouldn't be dead if she had that vaccine. And maybe your kids won't be. So cop on. So I just slightly want to challenge you there, because I just think, if that's true, if only because you come to these meetings and, and you eventually, after seeing all this other stuff, you go back to the good sources, because you're a journalist and you're smart and you get it, but everybody else doesn't get it, why are over 90% of people in the UK vaccinated? Just, just, yeah. this is my point. So the narrative, the discussion, I sit in meetings all the time where people say that the public health information is pompous and arrogant and no one buys it, except everyone buys it. Over 90% of people buy it. So either people are more intelligent fair. than you take them for, or, or they're not trusting, something is going well here. Yeah. So yeah. your experience has been really bad, but... Sorry. But that kind of sounds pompous as an answer. I would say, like, I know you're not being, I know you're just conveying the sign. But to me, if I was a parent in, who didn't know anything about it, they'll say, well, we're doing it right. Well, are you? If, if yeah. we're still having people falling in the holes, no, we definitely, I, have, I, definitely I, have people falling in the holes. But no, I think you're holes. being pompous now because 90% 90 90 of those ordinary parents have looked at the information, sure. did go to a boring, pompous PHE site, or spoke to boring, pompous experts. PHE is pretty good, they, actually. They're and they, good. they're doing the right thing. Yeah. So, but there's been a 3% decline this year. We had 80, uh, 87% Over 90% of people are making the decision yeah. to vaccinate. No, it's not. It's 87% it's this year. It's gone down. But public health sites, so, so it went reliable sites. was on Jeremy Vine about, I was on it, Jeremy Vine talked about it, we went down to 87 um, national coverage. And that doesn't sound like of much. In, in of Of uh, MMR. No, MMR2. No. MMR2. Two. 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 The second, the second yeah. jab. Even yeah. case, your immunity is still, it's still going downward. It's not a trend yeah. we want. If you've had one, it's not because you're, you're not anti-vaccine if you haven't had two. It's you just, just didn't get your reminder. You see, I'm not sure I, I can accept that argument entirely because we don't know what's changed in the interim. I'm just saying I'd be very, very hesitant of assuming anyone's intention on that. That's all. Deborah, please introduce yourself <laughs> Sorry, because yes, I'm, I'm you have Deb a particular perspective. Uh, I'm Deborah Cowell. I'm a, a teacher in Bath. I teach. Um, theory of knowledge and biology, and I'm interested in why students pick up on certain things, where they get their knowledge from. Um, so I set them research projects on vaccinations um, to see what does come up first. And absolutely that, because anti-vaccination organisations will call themselves the Vaccination Council. <laughs> so they will give themselves a name that leads somebody to that. So I think the problem with social media is not necessarily that people trust it or don't. It's the fact that you're able to get much more confirmation bias your confirmation bias is laid on a plate for you if you want it. And so enabling students to pick out um, which bit has backed up their own particular bit of knowledge. And I think where journalists have a, a role is, I think you're right that doubt is good. Um, that you, you can't just say this is right and this is right because if you, if you have certainty, you don't learn anything else. There, there is no new knowledge without a bit of doubt. So I think journalists putting a bit of doubt in people's minds so they can research it from a different point of view is good. Um, so we shouldn't shy away from things that could unleash a problem as long as we have people to back it up with the science. A couple of questions here. I'm uh, Andy Hawkes from the Science Media Centre. Um, I'm just a question for the panel really. If we've got this, we do have this high or low 90s rather percent of people getting vaccinated and slightly lower on the second cap. But clearly there's this gap of people who we need to reach to pull it up over 95, get up to 
and is a mass media or a wide broad spectrum approach of communicating better the benefits of vaccines going to reach those groups do we know who those groups are and is just a broad spectrum look going to be the best way to get them like in Ireland with HPV or other places with big drops obviously a broad spectrum is the right idea because you need to tell everyone but where there's already over 90 percent of people doing it is a massive broad brush actually going to be the most effective tool I think probably not. I mean, one of the things to focus on measles is perhaps a little bit misleading because there's a huge range of diseases we vaccinate against. But measles is very, very <coughs> infectious. And that's why you have to aim to get two doses of MMR at 95%. And after that, you can almost guarantee that an individual will be immune. So there's two issues there. One is who are the cohorts that are not vaccinated? And some of those remain what we could call the Wakefield cohorts. So they're young people. You know, if they were born in 98 and you think about when, or in fact they were born in 97 and when the story emerged in February 98, mm. parents were then thinking, oh, and frightened. And so we then have a cohort, several cohorts that didn't get vaccinated because, or some of whom didn't get vaccinated, maybe 20% in some places. And that went on for about six years, maybe, before it started to come back up again. It was about 2006 when it started to rise again. So you can see that's actually quite a substantial population that is going to be susceptible. Because measles is so infectious, if you get an importation into a well, not a, not a fully effectively vaccinated population, it's like that. It really is infectious. So that's one of the reasons we've been seeing outbreaks. And of course, anybody who isn't vaccinated for whatever reason, as well as those cohorts, could be <coughs> infected. Young people are marvellous, but young people have got marvellous lives and they have lots and lots of things to do. And trying to make sure that everybody in that particular cohort finds time to get vaccinated and hears the message can sometimes be challenging. So we've tried all sorts of routes to get to, for example, that cohort. <laughs> you know, it's about reaching the cohorts, it's about understanding who hasn't been vaccinated and why they haven't been vaccinated. In some cases, and we have a published study on a community in Northeast London, it's because their particular social and cultural community, the services that are there don't quite match the needs of the community. So that's another reason why people don't get vaccinated. Yeah, yes. um, my name is Jonathan, Jonathan Kennedy from Queen Mary University of London. I totally <laughs> understand this idea that context is, is super important to understanding vaccine hesitancy, but it also strikes me, and it's been something I've been thinking up about the last few weeks, that there's real advantages to making comparisons both between different countries and across yeah. time. And when we start doing that, we see that there's this kind of, it's like a common thing that keeps coming back again and again, these conspiracy theories that accompany public health issues. And, you know, we might look at HIV AIDS denialism in the early 2000s, or we might look at Northern Nigeria and uh, yeah. concerns about polio causing sterility and that being a, a kind of um, a conspiracy by the, the South and by um, you yeah, to sterilize the population. Or if we go back further, we can, we can think of, you know, cholera in the 1830s when it first came to Europe. And a lot of people didn't believe it was 
a new disease that had come from India. They thought it was um, a conspiracy by the rich to kill the poor in these newly mushrooming cities in, 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 in northern England, for example. And they, there were riots you know, from Russia all the way to, 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 to England. And even if we go back further to the Middle Ages, you have um, people attacking Jewish communities and lepers and witches at various points when you have outbreaks of, of infectious diseases. So I guess, and I wanted to bring in Mark as well as a, as a historian, but, but, but the rest, just kind of to try to understand what we can learn from, from these links and is there something common underpinning all of, all of That's a brilliant question. I'm going to kind of tie it into the other one as well because you can answer two birds with one stone. So the other example you might give as well is if you um, survey African-Americans <coughs> living in, obviously, America, about their attitudes towards HIV, over 50% still believe it's a man-made virus designed to wipe out the poor. And similar thing, that there's a brilliant story behind that actually was a bit of Russian disinformation that was deliberately put around during the Carter presidency that backfired horrifically because now it went, AIDS was real and it went to Russia and then they had to beg the American virologists for help. And I, I've written about this before, it's a crazy story, but that's exactly what. So to answer part of your question about things, how they go, Something we haven't considered, and maybe this is my training as a physicist kicking in, is criticality. You have a point where things pivot, and it's not a linear ramp. You have a certain amount of disinformation, a certain amount of conspiracy theory before things flip, and it's very volatile when it flips. So we can get very complacent and say the system is stable now, but this is what we <coughs> in physics call a strange attractor or a chaotic oscillator. It is not stable, and if you do the maths modeling, and you can kind of see if you try to do these models of information communication, when do things get to a point where they suddenly flip on their head, and is that why they're cyclic? So, oh, God, I, yeah. I, I actually wanted to answer my colleague's question, okay. <laughs> which I didn't plant, but it does allow me to get back to my theme, which is really, I think, a bit more narrow than everyone, so apologies, but it really is focusing on the journalism that we're seeing over the last six months. So I think, to be honest, I think Joe's almost certainly right that the mass media coverage of vaccines right now probably wouldn't get to the, the target communities. And I've been told that a lot by experts, but they know how to get to those communities, but they haven't got the money, there's not enough health workers and stuff like that. But it's not even an option, is it? We can't, none of us in this room, unless there's any newspaper editors, can sit here and decide that what we would like is newspaper coverage on the benefits of vaccines, please, for six months, hopefully that will reach those communities. That's not an option. The media set the agenda. So what we have got, which is what I want to talk about, is we've got media reporting for six months that we have a major vaccine crisis in the UK. Not true. Media coverage saying there's a, a, a ticking time bomb in the UK. Media coverage repeatedly saying that social media is the problem in the UK and we need action against it. And that is misleading media coverage. It's misleading media but coverage. We, we were set up... It. Well, uh, to the because extent, I, I kind of, I've given some the, papers that would contradict that, so I'm so, saying so in, in is it outside of the UK, outside of the UK, absolutely there are problems in different places. But in the UK, so the PHE survey and other surveys asking actual people, so unless you challenge it, are your concerns about vaccination from social media? The answer was no. Nobody has shown me a piece of compelling evidence that shows that the decision not to vaccinate was because of reading anti-vaxxers on social media. I'm happy to send your papers, and I think David alluded to it there, what people answer versus what they do when they're actually... But, but what, if, if they, what, they do, what they do is 90% of them vaccinate. <laughs> the, the narrative in the UK is misleading. Could it happen? Ticking time bomb. Let's get in there because these things It happened things in Ireland split. like two years Absolutely, ago, totally 87 to 50. I'm and, totally <laughs> happy to accept that argument, but the Science Media Centre was set up to get more accurate, measured 
reporting on science. We cannot say that stuff in Wakefield was inaccurate and misleading and not measured, that was wrong. This coverage now, which has been misleading and is often inaccurate and is overclaiming and is exaggerated, is fine because it's on the right side. It's on our side and we like it and we're really happy. We can't. We have uh, to actually, apply I'm the same. Use my chair's because I, I don't think we're going to resolve <laughs> Can I just say one okay, thing? Okay, very quickly. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't like to hear the suggestion that we're complacent. We are not. Okay. We are sure. always aware. Having I'd worked through MMR and the Wakefield story. It was very challenging. Yeah. We are never complacent and our eyes are okay. always on the, okay. on the tipping point, to so use on, your phrase. On, on that point, because Wakefield hasn't gone away and we're in a department of journalism. So how should journalists... So I hear this gentleman here might be fairly representative of informed <coughs> members of the public. He's trying to get information and he's disappointed that journalism aren't doing a good enough job of explaining what is wrong, for instance. So, I mean, uh, Helen, I mean, when you saw this, I was appalled. Do you think that the Times should have reported it, or do you think the failure was not to report it better? That's really my question. I don't think they should have reported it. You don't think they should have reported no, it? Uh, okay. Sorry, Helen Bedford, uh, UCL. I, just, I agree with Fiona that, you know, he's been speaking in American cities every week for the last 10 years, so why suddenly, mm. suddenly report it? And if they were going to do it, it should have been reported much better. They could have dismissed yeah. the thing they said in an instant. Mm. Okay, so can we take a second point? Because I think this goes to the issue of, I mean, so where I am, I, I don't, can't, I, I'm not going to resolve this, but I, I think you can't put the genie back in the bottle. We live in a world of so, where social media yeah. is all pervasive. I suppose a lot of people in this room probably still get a lot of information from newspapers, but certainly a lot of the journalism students I, I, I see coming as first years don't read newspapers anymore. They get their information directly from, you know, their favourite online websites. But the question is, we still have big papers like The Times, which set the agenda and provide a lead. But this isn't the sort of journalism that's going to sort of give you the answers to your questions, because they're actually amplifying it and then having a paragraph lower down saying, reputable experts say this is nonsense, so, so why publish the story? My question is, what sort of journalism would be better, given that we can't ignore Andrew Wakefield as much as we try? He is there. He's addressing audiences directly. Yes, but well, take an example in in Brooklyn, in New York, in, where they've had a major problem. That he directly went to the Jewish community to a closed meeting and drip fed this stuff directly to them from a video link. It wasn't social media; it was old-fashioned. No, 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 I understand that, but I still don't understand why we need to cover it in our There's a difference between reporting and sort of giving a voice to people like that and giving them the space to say what they think and reporting on actual concerns that parents have. And that's why I love the example of what happened where you just you know you <clears throat> talk about the concerns that parents have you talk about the issues you address them but you don't give people like that the space to sort of okay. spread their but concerns but just, it, just as one example they also say certain things which are true that natural immunity is superior to vaccine induced immunity that is true it's right it's not true as a generalisation no. it's oh. disease dependent it's specific right and that's the other issue. So for tetanus, for diphtheria, for some other diseases, it is not Absolutely. true. This is part of the problem. Yeah. All right. these things are nuanced. Someone who says, I know hundreds of people who had measles and survived and are okay, that is probably yeah. factual because only one in a thousand, one in two thousand people die. But we've got past that um, <laughs> yeah. discussion that's being rehearsed. We don't need to rehearse that in the newspapers.
because no. we need to rehearse it in the literature. And one thing I, I would agree that most people have found is that people say they do trust their individual health professional mm. and their behaviour right. is as though they do on the whole. Yeah. I'm not right. talking That's about the extreme anti-vaxxer. Right. And I think it requires what someone was alluding to, and that's the one-to-one -one conversation, which can be tailored to the particular yes. person. So I think there's two things. One, <laughs> I believe in a free press, but what I don't believe in is headlines like that. Yeah. And that is the biggest problem, because a lot of people, they read the headline. Oh, crikey, vaccines are making measles more dangerous. Ugh. You know, that's quite worrying, isn't it? But that's what they read, and the nuance is entirely missing. And when you said about looking for evidence, the issue is there's absolutely tons of evidence about these things, but it's all nuanced. And, you know, why do we as healthcare professionals, why do we never say vaccines are 100% safe? Because it's more nuanced than that. There may be one person who has anaphylaxis, but it's so rare. One GP once worked out he'd have to be in practice for 300 years before he saw a case of anaphylaxis in his practice population. Plus, I think there was something that Ben Goldacre, who you may or may not uh, like or whatever, he once said that actually scare stories sell media much better. I've got it as a quote on one of my slides from MMR, so it's all those years ago, that scare stories... Uh, sell better than good news. And the good news about vaccines, you know, when have any of you ever seen a headline that says millions and millions and millions of children have been protected by vaccination? You've never seen it, have you? You're never going to see well, it. There's been good news in BBC on Scotland's uptake of the HPV vaccine, for yep, example. That's They've been really positive. positive Australia's yeah. as well. It's been like, hey, great. But it's, yeah. oh, it's a minor story then because, yeah. you know, car crashes sell. If it bleeds, it leads. Can, can I just make a more general Sorry. point about yes, journalism? Yep. So I think for us, this is absolutely central. How does the media report these things? The love of a maverick, you know? So it's Wakefield, but we've got them today. I mean, we're more exercised about statins than we are about MMR right now because for four or five years, you know, a group of five to ten real mavericks, outliers who don't publish, who are just media friendly commentators, are out there saying statins are very dangerous, side effects of 20% when actually they're 1% against these huge, big multi-centre, multi-country, randomised control trials from top universities published. So all the way, it's not unlike MMR, all the weight of evidence, your nice vision earlier of your scales is there. But the Today programme have had this person on five times in a year because they love the maverick. Mm -hmm. So the one thing I will say is that this particular maverick so far hasn't been discredited. I totally agree with Helen on, you know, the, the, it was literally like the Times said, the discredited Andrew Wakefield said this in Chicago. Why are you writing? The discredited, he was in the media for 10 years in the UK, like I said earlier, on every bulletin. But he was discredited. The paper was detracted. He was done for fraud. He was struck off. The GMC fled to America's he couldn't live here. So that's ridiculous. We, the one thing we can call on the journalists to do is to report where the weight of evidence lies and when mavericks are such outliers that they've been discredited to not feature them. Look at, look at the climate situation. The sceptics in 2002 were all over the show. Slowly but surely, we heard from them, we asked them to show their evidence, we got the scientists to come out fighting every time. You very rarely hear sceptics anymore. 
So it comes out in the wash? I suppose the difference is that there really is a climate crisis. The question we're asking is, is there really a vaccine crisis or is the press inflating it? But very quickly, you Yeah, you it's, it's just to react on that, because I think it's also about the context in which he reported. So if you start creating those type of newspaper articles about he's done this meeting and you had that many people and that's why he said and that's that's obviously not the type of, of journalism that we're looking for but there is a way of reporting about what he's doing and mm. I'm thinking about the event when he tried to come to Europe to show his, um, his <laughs> film and that was just that. shot down yeah. in so many places and it was reported in the news <laughs> in such a way look he's yeah. trying to do all of that but he's being shot down by the scientists by the the parliament it did work in some countries unfortunately but I think that's the type of reporting that we can do where you know we do talk about him because not talking about him is just I think it's also not being transparent but putting it into the, co the bigger context. So there was an interesting when that came the Curzon Cinema in London where he was cancelled at and yeah. there I remember the Telegraph quoted me at length at that having a go at him because I've dealt with Wakefield personally and he's a dick. He, had, he quoted me like the, the Telegraph was the same paper in 1999 that called him a champion of yeah. patience. One thing we're forgetting mm -hmm. with the whole story is critical mass again. Mm -hmm. The Wakefield paper, the Lancet paper, which God knows how they got past review, came out with 12 stations in 1998. Wakefield calls his press conference and you know what happened? Nothing for two years. And the reason nothing happened is the gatekeepers of media who were science and health journalists for the first two years were savvy enough to go, this is nonsense. The way it got into popular press was as a human interest story. It was suddenly, my child is autistic, I think it might be the vaccine. Once you had a critical mass, it went in the back door. It didn't go through, it was just reported. And that is where a failure of journalism transpired. Just one thing as well. When we're reporting stories, if it's about something that, you know, artificial grass or something, I don't know, it doesn't really matter if you say it's good or bad or indifferent or you know whatever mm -hmm. but if you start doing bad reporting about something as important as immunization you will damage people's lives mm -hmm. vaccination has saved millions of lives across the globe if you misreport on vaccination you will damage people's lives and some will die. And Joe, just to say, globally, more children are vaccinated now than ever, ever before. Is it possible to say one positive thing for journalists? Yes, oh. yes. Because you know what? No, I, I, started, I started years ago when I started doing science talks. <coughs> I started off mocking journalists, and now I mock scientists. I really do. Mm. I mock my colleagues more because their research is often terrible, and the reporting of it is even worse. Yes. But one thing I will say is we're given out about the Wakefield thing, and that there was a massive media failure, which we should condemn. The fact that Wakefield was exposed was also mm. thanks yeah. to I Brian Deere. Yeah. And yeah. Brian Deere not only exposed Wakefield as being incorrect, which the public health bodies were already saying, he showed he had financial conflicts yeah. of interest, that he was corrupt. The stuff that got him struck off the register. And that kind of dogged journalism is yeah. something that we really need more of than ever, I yeah. think. Yeah. Well, that's a good note. Yeah.